Okay, but can we just get to for the recording, because we just went a long way on this primary outcome, and it shouldn't be that confusing. Can you just give us a clean read on the primary outcome, and then, Nyan, you can cut all the shit out before it. I humbly apologize. Okay. I no, this is exactly this is why it's a recorded podcast and we're not live here. And so we we can fix this. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice a month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast will definitely discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. And tonight, boy, we have a huge team. So we've got Swap. Introduce yourself, Swap. Hey, I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at hswapnil, and I don't have any conflicts uh, for today's podcast. Nayan? I'm Nayan Aurora. I am a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Chloride, and I have no conflicts of interest here. Jenny? My name is Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin, and I have no conflicts of interest. Josh? Hi, everyone. I'm Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. I tweeted J. Waits, and I have no conflicts of interest because I don't make enough money to have conflicts of interest. And Sophie? Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinical nephrologist and assistant professor at the Denver VA and the University of Colorado. I tweet at Sophia Kidney, and I have no conflicts of interest. And Jordy? Hi, I'm Jordy Cohen. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Pennsylvania, and I tweet at Jordy underscore BC. I have no relevant conflicts of interest. And tonight we have a special guest. We have Elliot Tapper. Elliot, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Elliot Tapper, Hepatology at the University of Michigan. I tweet at E.B. Tapper. My conflict of interest is that I've consulted for the maker of Turlipressin for the, a different drug in the liver space. Excellent. Tonight we are talking about Turlipressin. This is a drug that has uh, long been the envy of our eye, as we have seen our colleagues in Europe use it for treating and reversing hepatorenal syndrome. When you looked at the data, it looked pretty compelling, and this drug was uh, licensed by Mallinckrodt, and they attempted to bring it to the United States, and they have done a number of studies to reach that end, and this is the most recent one. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 4th. It is the largest hepatorenal syndrome interventional trial ever done by a long shot. So I guess... All the terlipressin data before this was like 226 patients, and this patient, in this study itself, randomized 300 people. So for this field, it was a massive trial, and and it's a pretty interesting trial because it's kind of a win some lose some trial, and I think it'll be uh, really interesting to go through this. But before we dive into this trial, Elliot, can you paint a picture of wh- what the state of hepatorenal syndrome interventional trials was? 
on March 3rd before this was published. It's a relatively dire place in American hepatology, hepatorenal collaborations. Basically, what we have available for us is that there's no drugs that were approved. We had octreotide, which is supposed to be a splanchnic vasopressor, and we have midodrine, which is which will increase MAP and hopefully renal perfusion. We knew that the Europeans had terlipressin, but we couldn't get it approved through the FDA. There had been two prior attempts at a registration trial, which in total enrolled about three, just under 200 people. You had the group by Boyer and the group by Sanyal. And in each case, what you would see is a little bit more reversal of hepatorenal syndrome in the active arm than you would in placebo. It wouldn't meet the statistical significance, but if you pooled the uh, trials together as they later uh, tried to, uh, you would see significance in that sort of individual patient meta-analysis. Okay. Excellent. But, but what do we? What kind of data do we have on midodrine and octreotide? That's the standard of care in most of North America. But I don't think that has even the kind of data that is there for terlipressin. No. We basically follow a practice that has its roots in a trial of, I believe, 10 people. It's like a case series, right? It wasn't even a trial. It, yeah. it was like, a hey, we gave this to 10 people and they some of them got better. That's exactly right. There was a lot more data on mechanism, the hormones that you you guys would be interested in, that would convince people that these are drugs that are working. But that's where it comes from. And the whole thing was you need systemic vasoconstriction and maybe renal vasodilatation or what have you. But the that's why this combination but there has been some thinking about this map business right that you just need to get the map up uh, and terlipressin is something that you can give on the floor versus you know noradrenaline or norepi or whatever that you need an icu for yeah you bring up a good point so there's two points i would like to elaborate on one is that if you look at people who had a response who had a reversal of their hepatorenal syndrome, those typically were people that had a response in their mean arterial pressure. And then two is that there were also small, poorly powered trials that looked at norepinephrine. And in general, what those trials will show you is that when patients don't have acute on chronic liver failure coming in without a, a trigger like alcoholic hepatitis or sepsis, norepinephrine has an equal effect in Europe to terlipressin. The issue here is that we have protocols where that kind of medicine cannot be infused on the floor. But if you are a hospital like Stanford, you will develop a protocol and it can be delivered safely on the floors without a problem. You're basically, it's a continuous infusion of three to five milligrams per hour. So I had also seen that norepi, it's really not much difference between the two and it's an ICU versus a floor sort of thing. There was one study, although I think it was still small in 2017, that also mentioned terlipressin had increased adverse effects as well, although it seems like it was mainly GI things. Is there any other history of terlipressin causing respiratory problems? So uh, uh, you're sort of uh, foreshadowing what happened in this trial, but in general, we have all seen respiratory problems in patients with renal failure who are getting large amounts of volume, and that also happens in the context of terlipressin. But just to back up a moment about the adverse effects of turley is that it, it is a profound vasoconstrictor. So you'll have people that get abdominal cramping. You'll have people that will infarct their toes. So it is not a benign medication. And there are trials that compare two different ways of infusing it, either by bolus or continuous infusion. And it turns out that the bolus 
dose is more likely to result in digital ischemia and abdominal cramping. And unfortunately, in this trial, they used a bolus dose. And Elliot, one question, not to get too far into the current study we're going to talk about. Are there studies, I couldn't find any, that looked at treatment of pedorenal syndrome without concurrent albumin use? I am not aware of that. Usually, there is some albumin given. And I have pushed some of the people who have been involved in these trials exactly like how much albumin ought we be given? Is this like a necessary part of the treatment package? And I think early in when I was a fellow, I wanted to follow the letter of these trials, which almost universally gave somewhere around 10 or 20 grams of albumin each and every day. But at some point, if the treatment's going on for a long time, you do worry that you've, you've given too much. Uh, and in clinical practice, you'll start to pull back. But that's not what happened in this trial. And and then I. But, but isn't it? Oh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, sorry. But isn't it part of it that uh, you do need to volume resuscitate them? That's one of the criteria for that. It's diagnosis. a definitional. It's a definitional it's a thing, right? Right, right. So they do need to get some albumin before you say, hey, they got albumin and the kidney failure hasn't reversed, so it's a bad renal syndrome. Yes. So the albumin is part of the diagnostic process for hepatorenal syndrome. We are meeting people in table one after they have established that they failed to improve their renal dysfunction with adequate volume expansion. But the point that I was getting to is at what point is there diminishing returns from continuous dosing of albumin? That's less clear. Everybody with AKI ought to get volume expansion up front, but every single day, I'm not so sure about that. And after you've proven that they're no longer volume responsive, right? That's a, that's yeah. another kind of yeah. key, a key kind of key definitional point, right? If they're if they've entered any of these HRS trials, they have failed volume expansion, and it, to some degrees, it feels like the people that continue giving uh, fluid resuscitation once you've said no, it's ATN. I've already told you this is not going to be volume responsive. This is not a hemodynamic situation. The mind does what the mind wants, and and you see that bumped creatinine, you want to get volume, right? It's, it's Okay. And then uh, not um, not to finish our, our seven on seven nephrologists on one Elliot, I think the question that I have is really more about framing our general discussion here, right? These are incredibly sick patients. And our goal is really bridging from acute sickness to the goal of liver transplant. And I think that's something that we often forget in taking care of these short term outcomes. And in thinking about how this trial works, and I'm sure we're gonna get into this in a bit. Our goal is like, how can we bridge these people from their current sickness to the place that they're stable enough and on the wait list long enough and melding high enough that they qualify for a transplant wherever they are? That is the That sounds question. optimistic to me. Yeah. It's certainly optimistic. But the issue here is that you have people who did everything they could to prove that they had, without a shadow of a doubt, hepatorenal syndrome and no other cause. But in clinical practice, we are meeting people who are probably, there's probably a differential diagnosis for their kidney injury. There's pro and, and in fact, hepatorenal syndrome is a spectrum of renal injury where at some point it becomes irreversible. And it's likely that we saw people have to forced to demonstrate the physiology of hepatorenal syndrome such that we selected a group of people where it was either transplant or mortality. But I don't think it's a fair standard to say we will only treat hepatorenal syndrome if transplant is a bridge, because for the vast majority of people that we see in clinical practice, we are not trying to enroll them in a clinical trial. And I do believe that we can reverse more of that kidney injury. 
I just don't know for certain if it's HRS. That's interesting. And, 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 yeah, and I, the sponsor here, again, it's one of my favorite companies, but they probably thought they had a winner on their hands, right? On the basis of the previous trials, they thought, hey, they just need to do the right trial. And this drug is going to get approved. They worked with FDA to make sure. I don't know how that works, but it seems there was some committee and some meeting and they said, hey, this is the end point. So they followed all those rules. Uh, and it looked like I honestly thought this was going to work just be on the basis of the Europeans using it and on the basis of previous trials. And let's not spill the beans, but the drug works based on their definitions that they agreed on with the FDA. They get a win. Okay, George... Jordy, you're doing methods for us? Yep, I'll start going through the methods. But we better get started. We'll be here all night. Yeah, I'll try to be efficient, but I do want to touch on a couple of the key points that just came up. So, of course, most importantly, this was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. As was just uh, mentioned, this was developed really under the uh, oversight of the FDA at their recommendation through this agreement to do this phase three trial to move forward with something that would be perceived as reasonable to consider for FDA approval, which the FDA did not feel the prior trials were sufficient. So the trial was fully funded by Mallinckrodt, the pharmaceutical company that creates this medication. And they designed the study, so the drug company designed it. The drug company also paid for the analyst to the statistician who performed all the analyses. There was a non-Mallinckrodt employee, academic nephrologist that was a first author who wrote the paper, or was it, I think it was nephrologist or hepatologist, but yes, academic physician who wrote the paper. But the overall, they weren't involved in the design of the study. In terms of the, the time period, it was from July 2016 to July 2019. It involved 60 sites in the U.S. and Canada, a University of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, where I'm at, was one of them, and I remember seeing patients that were involved. And the inclusion criteria were people were adults with cirrhosis and ascites. Uh, people had to have doubling of their creatinine to a minimum of 2.25 milligrams per deciliter, which is a bit different than some of the standard HRS definitions. And this had to have they had to have had this doubling occur with they had to have be on this trajectory to look like they were going to continue to be doubling over the next two weeks. And they actually looked at charts to see if they expected the creatinine to continue to rise. Can we talk about that real yeah. quick? Why, why, that, 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 is anybody else bothered by this 2.5 definition? That's an older definition of HRS. That's There's been position papers after that that have revised that criteria and they adopted the more the KDGO AKI criteria. Yeah, so this was much higher creatinine and this was later on one of the critiques of the study is that maybe this was a point of no return. Maybe these were people who were too sick to really see benefit and that's what some of the critics of the trial design say. The reason probably for choosing such a high creatinine was that we knew that in sicker patients you tend to often see more likelihood of them achieving an endpoint and therefore you'll be more likely to see benefit from a drug. And so it was this balance of which one do we choose? Do we try to power ourselves to achieve enough endpoint or do we try to power ourselves to with needing potentially many more patients, but treating those people that are less sick who might benefit more? And it's a very tough call given how expensive these trials are. Um, and and, and, and the a idea- small point about the, the creatinine. So creatinine is a bad yeah. marker of kidney function in many settings, but in cirrhosis, it's awful. These people have poor muscle mass and the liver is also not working. So the creatinine is probably going to overestimate the kidney function. The kidney function is probably far worse 
than what the serum creatinine suggested is. And again, I'm not saying they should have used cystatin C or some biomarkers. You can't drop in something else. But that's something to think about is that probably the kidney function was far worse than we think it was. It's a good point, right? I see my cirrhotics and do they have a creatinine more than 0.6? I get worried. Usually yeah. they're sitting there around 0.5. So. Yeah, it's... Uh... And that the, the graph is just to make sure we don't have people that are already on the mend that have crossed this 2.5 threshold, but their creatinine is starting to come down. And we're like, no, you don't count. You're not sick enough. That's the point of the this whole bit about graphing it and projecting where they're going to be. Is that the idea there? Correct. Because when you look at somebody's trajectory of their kidney function, you also get some insight into how much muscle mass they have left to actually generate creatinine. And when you see they start to plateau, you get the sense that they're not going to go much higher. So they were using these normograms to try to basically comfort themselves that these patients were going to continue to increase in terms of their creatinine. It seems like a smart idea for enrolling. Exactly. <laughs> it's picking people that are sick though. No, but it's removing patients from your cohort that are going to get better yeah. regardless of who they, what they are. And it seems like a good idea in an AKI trial to remove patients that are on the med. It was removing people who couldn't get much worse if they'd already re reached their threshold of they don't have much more creatinine to generate. Uh, and that's the other group that you're excluding there. So you want to see people that were going to get worse yeah. and weren't getting better. You need people who the, are going to reach that end point. Yeah, but that two point, like that cutoff just seems weird for this particular population if that yeah. was what their goal was. Remember, we need to think about this. The study is designed before 2016. They started enrolling people in 2016. It's probably being designed in 2014, 2015. I don't know. Like, I, And it's hard for me to think back what, was, what, what were our definitions back then. But I think that was the definition of type 1 hepatorenal back in 2016. The, what is it, the International Ascites Club, I think they said greater than 2.5 was there. They had a hard cutoff definition. I think this was a 2.25, wasn't it? Yes. It was very odd. One can make the counter argument, too, that really these patients might actually be a little bit healthier because they do have more muscle mass. And we are missing a larger population of sicker hepatorenal patients with lower muscle mass that can't even mount that AKI response. These people were pretty sick. I, I'm not, I, I think few people are going it, to... It, it, theoretically, it's possible, but I think we, we have a, a sick enough population here. It doesn't feel like a particularly healthy population. Yeah, I agree. And so some of the other inclusion-exclusion criteria that go into that to try to further really prove that these people were truly hepatorenal was that you had to do that albumin challenge that we just talked about earlier. So people had had to be monitored for 48 hours before they were even enrolled, where their diuretics were stopped and they received albumin and they had to prove that they weren't going to respond to volume, that this was in no way pre-renal. They couldn't have any evidence of any other sources of renal disease. So no proteinuria, no any evidence, of, no evidence of obstructive uropathy, no evidence of parenchymal disease of any kind, no hematuria. And so anything that could be other than hepatorenal or superimposed on hepatorenal was not knocked you out of the study. They also excluded people who had obvious sepsis or shock. They excluded people whose creatinine was higher than seven. So they did include people still with very high creatinine levels and anybody who'd had a large volume paracentesis within two days of randomization. Also anybody with recent dialysis. And so the randomization scheme I thought was really interesting. I might be the only nerd in the room who, does, who thought that, but they did a two to one randomization. And so this, I think, they don't mention why anywhere. And the lesson of the story is whenever someone does something that's not one to one randomization, ask why. Because that was, in this case, I think, not the decision of the people who sponsored the study. I suspect that was at the task of the FDA. Because a two to one randomization where two people get terlipressin for every one person that gets placebo means that you're going to have more power 
power to, to assess for adverse events. So I'm guessing that was at the task of the FDA. Sometimes there's the argument made that the uh, companies do this because they think people won't enroll in the study if they think there's a higher likelihood that they won't get the drug. So maybe Mellencroft would make that argument, but I, I do suspect this was put forward by the FDA because if they thought that was the argument, they would have advertised that somewhere in the protocol. So I thought that was interesting. They stratified people based on their baseline kidney function and based off of whether they'd had a large volume paracentesis in the couple of weeks prior to enrollment, again, remembering that they excluded anyone who'd had one within 48 hours. And the intervention was this one milligram of trilopressin that was given in boluses versus placebo over two minutes every five and a half to six and a half hours together with albumin. The albumin was given on the first day as one gram per kilogram up to 100 grams. And then after that, it was that dose that Elliot had mentioned previously of about 20 to 40 grams per day. But it wasn't prescribed that it had to be this amount. They just encouraged the investigators to do it, but it wasn't by protocol and they could have given any amount that they wanted to. In terms of the bolus of trilopressin, one observation I thought was really interesting in reading through their protocol is that the half-life, the median half-life elimination of trilopressin is actually less than an hour. So that bolus is really quite an inter interesting decision. Also with what Elliot had mentioned of the higher uh, risk profile of the bolus compared to continuous infusion. The treatment was continued until 24 hours after the creatinine was less than or equal to 1.5 milligrams per deciliter or up to a maximum of 14 days. And if creatinine decreased by less than 30% from the baseline value on day four, the study drug was increased to, from the one milligram per day to eight milligrams per day. One no, milligram per six hours. Per six hours, I'm sorry, every six hours. So four milligrams so from per four day. Milligrams, sorry, from four milligrams a day to eight milligrams per day, if they had no improvement after f 10 doses, is that what it was? After four days. So if they had no improvement after, after four, four days, days on the on four milligrams per day, they went up to eight milligrams per day. But you're correct. It's after four days and a minimum of 10 doses. Okay. Can I just okay. interrupt really quick? Terilopressin, you said the half-life is how long again? The half-life is less than an hour, but then the metabolites are about three hours. Okay. And that's actually much longer, though, than vasopressin, right? Yeah. All right, so the primary endpoint was a reversal of hepatorenal syndrome, which was defined as two consecutive creatinine measurements that were less than or equal to 1.5 milligrams per deciliter and survival without renal replacement therapy at two weeks. Secondary endpoints included incidence of hepatorenal reversal with that same definition, the durability of it over, to over 30 days, so whether or not this lasted for at least a month, Incidence of this hepatorenal syndrome reversal in the subgroup of individuals who had presented with uh, SIRS, with, with uh, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, and hepatorenal uh, syndrome recurrence by day 30. There were another like two dozen endpoints as well on top of that, which I won't go into in detail. And Elliot, do you, when you look at these endpoints, is this, does this seem clean to you? Is this, do you find that you read these and you find them compelling? You're like, yeah, this is what I'm looking for. Or, were you, or did you question these endpoints when you read them? No, absolutely not. This is, these are all the outcomes that you'd be interested in clinically. Like recurrence of HRS is something that happens, right? Uh, to people that you expected right. to cruise outside. These are not, these are meaningful outcomes, each and every one of them. It doesn't feel like the it doesn't feel like the company's stacking the deck. Does anybody else have concerns here? Yeah, I I think they went over backwards to make sure it's not stacking the deck. I think yeah. these are the outcomes are pretty pretty hard. Uh, re, yeah, pretty hard. Yeah, and pretty standard. Yeah. They're consistent with a lot of other yeah. uh, a lot of Trials, similar yeah. studies. Yeah, this exactly. is what you want to see. That's a good. One. Josh, what do you want? What do you want to say? Yeah, and I think I'm less well versed in clinical trials than literally everyone else in the recording. But that being said, I feel like the easy or the hardest 
endpoint here would be mortality. And I guess I'm confused with an endpoint that happened so soon because so many of these people are going to get sick and die. Why aren't we able to have mortality as a primary endpoint or a secondary endpoint here? That's a good question, but I, I guess partly it's the what previous trials may have done is they all were done looking at recovery but the, you know, at hepatorenal reversal. But the previous trials weren't good enough for the FDA to say right. we love this drug enough to approve it. So wouldn't the best case be like, oh, and this drug makes people live longer is like the, the slam dunk case for anything getting approved. Yeah, I think the big part of the problem is that they wanted to look at these short-term endpoints and mortality takes longer, even though these are some of the sickest patients in, in the world, I, you're still going to need to wait more weeks uh, to see death, not days. And we ended up capturing that data anyways. Yeah. Like that's the great, it's, it's, the data was recorded. We have mortality data. They, and they went out of their way. They, they, they got that data. Was, I think it was just 30-day data, but they went and they got all that data. And it ends up being one of the things that the, that the results turn on. But yeah, and you will see very, yeah, and you will see very few trials which are powered for mortality. Even if you look at the flows in trials, they weren't powered for mortality, though some of that did show uh, a difference in mortality. It's usually, it's, it's unusual. Sorry. And the, and then the last thing is that a lot of mortality is going to be driven by how effective their transplant program is. We, and are, are we really measuring the drug now or are we starting to measure some other aspect of the treating center that may be completely out of unprotocolizable? And then the other issue is if you're improving their creatinine, there's that argument about the effect that that has on the MELD score and how likely that person is to get transplanted. And then in turn, that could influence mortality as well. And this was a gap in their methods here is that they didn't track they have meld score at the entry of the trial and they don't track it during the trials i, I believe that's one of the criticisms that that the authors mentioned in their own analysis and so i'll finish up really quickly with the statistical analysis okay, yeah, the, go, go. the primary yeah. analysis was your standard intention to treat analysis which means that people were basically addressed as having received the medication they were assigned to regardless of what they actually received and that's the expected way to assess for efficacy and was appropriate but the thing that really is a little unusual is that because they were measuring creatinine and or they were looking at creatinine as the endpoint at 14 days and there were a good number of people that were discharged before 14 days they needed to use uh, multiple imputation, a technique to simulate what the creatinine values would have been in those people because they didn't measure them. So that is something that is a little bit unorthodox to do for a primary endpoint to be imputing what somebody's actual endpoint is without having that information, though it, it is implied that if you were discharged, you were probably doing better, but you could have been discharged to hospice. So, Do you know how many they had to impute? I don't know offhand. I'll pull that up in the next, uh, while Jenny is going through the, the results section. One of the questions I had about the uh, statistical analysis was in their sample size calculation. They have this line that said the uh, sample size for the analysis of the primary efficacy endpoint was calculated on the basis of pooled estimates of HRS reversal. And their pooled estimate for HRS reversal was 8.4% with terlipressin and 12.5% with placebo. They estimated a higher reversal rate with placebo. Does that make any sense to you? Like. Yeah, it does like not make sense. I didn't think it made sense. To, it didn't make sense to me either. Okay, okay. Well, I feel That's, better. Must be, it has to be a typo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love when I find typos in the New England Journal of Medicine. <laughs> Strong find. <laughs> and is that really the data? Is the, is the drug that bad or is the disease that bad? I don't know which one, but that, those are horrible numbers, by the way. 12% and 8%? Holy moly. Oh. The drug did, and, and like it always does in clinical trials, the drug performed way better than their <laughs> in their power analysis. You set the bar low, you'll never be disappointed, right? <laughs> I guess you'll, you'll you won't be underpowered. Okay, so we have our anything else in the methods, Jordy? Uh, those were the key points that I was looking at. 
Okay. Anybody else have any questions about the methods? Are we ready to roll to results? Jenny, hit us. In terms of the results, the TLDR version is that a higher percentage of uh, patients in the Turley-Preston arm achieve the primary outcome a verified HRS reversal up to day 14 and survival without dialysis for an additional 10 days. But there was also a higher rate of se- severe adverse events in the Turley Preston group. So going into the details a little bit more, there were 300 patients enrolled and randomized in that two to one ratio that Jordy was talking about. And at different time points throughout the trial, at 30 days, about half of them in each arm were able to complete the 30-day follow-up. But then when we got to 90 days, only 43% in the Turley group was able to complete it, and then 51% in the placebo group were able to complete it. In terms of the demographic data, the average patient seemed to be a 54-year-old adult, mostly male. The most common etiology of cirrhosis was alcohol, although there was notably more viral hepatitis in the Turley Preston group. And I don't know if that has any sort of biological significance. Elliot, when you look at those causes of liver cirrhosis, does that look like a pretty reasonable distribution for HRS or anything, any alarm bells there? No, no alarm bells. This, These are the kinds of people that are coming into our hospital with AKI. And so it is notable that a lot of these people had alcoholic hepatitis. A lot of these people had systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And that's who the that's the contemporary profile of HRS in our hospital. So, why don't, can you help me out? What's the significance of this SIRS syndrome? I always associate this with sepsis. Why is that so important in this group? Is, it, is that do we already know that this is a subgroup that does worse, or what's the significance there? It's just the, the that there's probably some degree of occult infection. Right. There is there's there. These people are going to be severely vasodilated, decreased effective arterial volume. This is the sort of picture that is trying to give. An additional point is that if if your whole population is enriched with people that have alcoholic hepatitis and you're worried about an outcome that includes mortality or transplantation, by and large, most people who are presenting with a MELD score in excess of 30 in alcoholic hepatitis, they are not they are not transplant candidates. The the vast majority are, are not. And so this is their destination. Oh, okay. Can I, can I interrupt again? So if you look at table one in the causes, they say alcohol use, not that they got liver failure from alcohol. And if you add up those numbers, they add up to more than 100. If you add up alcohol use, non-alcoholic state, NASH and viral hepatitis and autoimmune hepatitis, if you add up the percentages, it's more than 100. So presumably some of the people who had NASH or who had, no, not NASH, maybe had viral hepatitis, were also drinking alcohol, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah swap, swap you don't sound like a nephrologist. You're forgetting the multifactorial word that we use all the time. <laughs> like, these are people who have multiple causes of their liver failure. <laughs> exactly. Under the causes of cirrhosis, then they have alcoholic hepatitis. It's a, yeah, it's a separate row, right? It's not in part of the causes. So it's strange uh, why and how they did that. It's just an aside. Huh. Uh, again, we like to find things in New England Journal of Medicine to criticize. I don't see it. I don't see it as an error. The reality is that most Americans have multiple liver diseases. We do have a disease that's called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which seems to suggest it exists uh, by itself. But most people with viral hepatitis have NASH. And a lot of people with viral hepatitis, including until very recently, like 25% of our transplant population had comorbid alcohol and hepatitis C. 
right? I think it's better not to require the authors to say what one disease was there, but to tell us what they thought could be triggering this current decompensation, i.e. the alcohol use, the alcoholic hepatitis, and then just be uh, inclusive about the various potential etiologies. Absolutely. That makes sense. Would you want, do they do a better job of causing, of talking about what caused the, the, the patient to spin into HRS? Like I don't see, do they talk about SBP? Do they talk about a GI bleed? Do they talk about uh, a large volume? But I guess we exclude people with a large volume paracentesis. I, with that data wasn't here. I, I know I didn't read it unless it was in the supplement because I don't read supplements. <laughs> Shame, it's, shame. it's a moral position that I have. <laughs> yeah. But the, the table one is very sparse. It's a very short table yeah, one. Yeah, it is pretty short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I didn't see it. But the supplement is very long. And I will have to say, I did not read every single table. <laughs> yeah. Again, as you guys have said, this is a very sick cohort. The average serum creatinine was 3.5 milligrams per deciliter. And the mean bilirubin was around 13 and the majority of them were on midodrin and octreotide. So in terms of the primary outcome, 32% in the trolipressin group achieved the primary endpoint versus 17 I'm sorry, one, one last point on, on table one is during the chat, a number of people pointed out that the mean arterial pressure was pretty rich, that we're used to seeing people with lower pressures in their hepatorenal syndrome. And, and that rung true when I you know, see a mean arterial pressure of 78 Looked pretty darn good to me. What's your experience in hepatorenal syndrome? Just anybody wants to ring the bell, feel free. Joel, I actually had a question, or I guess Jordy, about methods here. If folks came in super hypotensive, like MAPS in the 50s, they're not going to get enrolled in the trial. They're going to go straight to ICU, don't pass go, get on leave a fed, and move on with the treatment they would yeah. get for hypotension, right? Yeah, so if the people were on vasopressors already, they were excluded. If people were septic, they were excluded, but they did allow people with SIRS. And so if you did come in hypotensive without another source and someone hadn't started you on pressors yet, then you were eligible. My question was, like, for the exclusion criteria of shock, did they define what shock meant? They did, I don't did not see it. I will pull up the sup, the supplements and I'll get right back to you. But the other thing is that the, the map bothered me initially because I, I agree my patients I don't feel like have maps this good. But I went back and looked at the other terlipresin trials. It's pretty consistent. The maps were seventy five to seventy seven in the other trials, so it's not so far out there. And it actually looks like shock is the reason that we got to where we are, because shock in their sense was defined as a map less than 70, or a decrease in systolic pressure of more than 40 millimeters of mercury from baseline. So any kind of evidence of hypoperfusion abnormality also contributed to being excluded in that sense. So if somebody was cyanotic, hypothermic, any pallor, things that are hard to tell when someone's jaundiced. Okay. Very cool. It's just not what we necessarily do in practice, so it, it's hard to apply it necessarily, but it does seem like a really rich, as you said, a robust map. Yeah, and even if the uh, you look at the albumin, it's 3.7 and 4, uh, and that doesn't look like my typical patient, but I guess... Like we're getting they, albumin. They were getting yeah. albumin. Exactly. This is something that came up exactly. in the chat as well. This yeah. is the post-aggressive yeah. albumin resuscitation exactly. albumin, so we're really seeing how well albumin works at being albumin. <laughs> Yeah, right. Albumin works and increasing it, albumin. It worked better in this trial than it did in a tire. Because <laughs> they were shooting a, a, for an albumin of 3.0 in a tire. Okay, keep going, Jenny. Or we're we're okay. going to be here all night. So let's go back to the primary outcome. 32% in the treatment group achieved the primary endpoint versus 17% in placebo. 
There's a p-value of 0 0.006, which we're really spoiled with the SGLT2 inhibitors that have the ones with 10 zeros or whatever after the decimal point. On less stringent terms in terms of the secondary outpoints, we see similar trends basically in the terlipressin group, and I won't go through all of those numbers. Does that uh, look, sound okay to people? Or maybe Elliot, like 17% of people got better with us doing nothing. We just didn't do anything and they, they resolved. The yeah, yeah. So that, yeah, the magic of albumin and then time, time away from alcohol, supportive care, the control of the, if they got antibiotics. Infection. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. When you look at placebo response uh, in the last 20 years, this is right in that ballpark. And ATN. Yeah, and that okay. same sort of multifactorial thing that you were talking about earlier, Josh, there is the multifactorial component that we really can't parse out in most of these hepatorenal patients. And, and that is a reminder that this is a group of people who got better to creatinine lower than 1.5, and there's probably a big group of people who hung out in that 1.5 to non-dialysis range and are, are still meeting the, the non-endpoint here. And we're happy about it usually as clinicians. We're like, yes! We've made some progress. Absolutely. Yeah, so echoing what El Elliot said in terms of people in placebo group improving with time away from alcohol, what is interesting is in the subgroup analysis, there was more reversal um, in the alcohol-associated uh, group. And in the group that had a serum creatinine of 3 to 5, and in the SIRS subgroup, which might make some physiologic sense. Okay, so alcohol, SIRS... And elevated and, creatinine, all were... But not you know, at the extreme, so not over five, and then not, not over five. three. But otherwise, those were ones that patients tended to do better with the terlipressin. Those yes. are indicators of terlipressin success. Okay. Yeah, in the subgroup analysis. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. And Sophie had asked earlier how many were imputed. I just wanted to jump in. And there were 17 in the terlipressin arm and nine in the placebo arm whose creatinines were imputed to determine the primary endpoint. So it's uh, almost 10% of patients. Mm -hmm. Not being the clinical epidemio epidemiologist, you guys know what I'm trying to say. 10%? Um, <laughs> is 10% is a large amount, like from an imputation perspective? Or should I be like, eh, that's all right, no big deal. So for an outcome, any, any amount is a large amount. For a covariate, if we were just saying if this were an observational study and we were adjusting for a covariate, less than 20% is considered acceptable. Around this range of 10% is considered pretty typical. But it's definitely not for an endpoint. Okay. So go Can on I ask on. one more oh. clarification, Jenny? I'm so sorry. Sure. The You had mentioned the ones that had done better were the ones who had the inflammatory response and then the those who were on al the alcoholics or alcoholic hepatitis. Correct. Elliot, are those also like alcoholic hepatitis, they are the ones that have more of a Cersei type presentation? Yes. It just makes sense that these guys would actually do better because terlipressin is such a strong vasoconstrictor. Am I stating the obvious? I'm going to, I'm going to. Oh. No, that's, <laughs> it's the obvious that needed to be stated. That's what that was. Yeah. And that when things make sense, we want to make sure we say the things that make sense. All right. Yeah, absolutely. And again, these are subgroups, right? Mm -hmm. So subgroups are never powered and all those yeah. other caveats. So it could be a chance finding and et cetera, et cetera. Wait, are you I the one take, who hates subgroup analyses? I can't take my eyes off of table three, which is like the really cool subgroup analysis. It's really compelling stuff. Which table three are you talking about? <laughs> the one that's after table two, but before table four. <laughs> It's on page 825 of the article, page 825 in the New England Journal of Medicine. 
Oh, yeah, that's the secondary endpoints. It's not subgroup. Come on. I'm sorry, secondary subgroup endpoints. Subgroup is. I'm sorry, secondary yeah, endpoints. Yeah, yeah. So secondary subgroup endpoints. is in the subgroup is in your supplement. It's figure well, no S ten. No wonder I didn't see that. Exactly. <laughs> we pulled it in the summary for you, just because I, I know you would not read this supplement. Anyway, sorry, Jenny, go ahead. Okay, yes. So we were about to get to table three, which was looking at who received dialysis, who underwent liver transplantation, and also mortality. So there was a lower percentage of people in the terlipressin group who received dialysis at days 14, 30, 60, and 90. It looks like fewer also had received uh, liver transplantation, although looking at the curves in the supplement, it didn't look like there was that much of a difference. And I'm not sure like what I'll have to dig a little bit deeper to see why were they looking at different things between in terms of what they were graphing out in the supplement versus they were stating in this table. And then for mortality, though, it was higher in the terlipressin group. And we do see a compelling Kaplan-Meier curve in the supplement where you see that the line goes uh, is lower uh, below placebo. And I think that's probably very concerning for the FDA. Let's see. And then going back also to what the FDA is also interested in is other adverse events. We see that there is higher mortality in the terlipressin group. And then notably, on there's a table in the supplement which looks at day 14 adverse events. And there were 19% in the terlipressin group who had respiratory failure versus zero in the placebo. And this is consistent when you go through all the other tables of the adverse events there was more fluid overload and shortness of breath seen in the terlipressin group. There was also more hypotension in the terlipressin group, which I thought was interesting, and more bradycardia and chest pain, as well as ex- lower extremity pain. There were some things there, and I didn't see in higher adverse events in the placebo group, but those were the main takeaways. And then the most common adverse event people experienced uh, was GI-related in terms of abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea. But I think most concerning is the fluid overload, shortness of breath. And just as a reminder, people with severe and, cardiovascular disease and were death, excluded. And, and, death and death was pretty yes. concerning. Yes. That was death, one that caught my eye. very concerning. Yeah. yeah I, I and death from death. respiratory failure, yeah. I just wanted yeah. to clarify about the respiratory failure idea. I think the way that I'm conceptualizing this, and I want to make sure that sounds reasonable, is that we've poured tons of albumin-rich intravascular volume into these people and then cranked up their afterload by giving them this terlipressin as a vasoconstrictor and that's leading to pulmonary backup and pulmonary congestion and respiratory failure is that kind of the right way we should be thinking about this adverse outcome somebody read the editorial yeah (laughs) (laughs) but was that seen Did we see that in other trials? They did the same thing, right? Albumin, terlopressin. Did we see respiratory failure in the other terlopressin trials? So keep in mind, first of all, that they were tiny. And second of all, that they weren't these two-to-one randomization trials that were powered specifically to most likely look for more adverse events. But, But the data that they did look at, they actually pooled between three different studies to get the results and comparing the different amounts of albumin. Wait, so, so, Sophie, what, 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 what are you talking about with the pooled three different trials? What's this? In the, F, the pooled analysis that was done, and this was put in that FDA report, and it was between, I believe, three different studies, and I don't know them off the top of my head. And I, I can't tell you which ones they were, but it was basically terlipressin compared to placebo. And among those, there were three randomized controlled trials it compared outcomes, particularly from a respiratory failure perspective, 
And we saw that based on how much albumin was given, that's really where the discrepancy came from the outcomes in respiratory events. And the placebo group, they got upwards of 423 grams of albumin and things more or less stayed the same. However, the more albumin that was given in the terlipressin group, we had a, a much larger percentage of people who individually ultimately had respiratory failure. So this from is, this retrospective look, the more albumin someone gets, the more likely they are to get respiratory failure and badness. I guess the only, question is... Only with if, on, only only if they got terlipressin. Only if they right? got terlipressin. It, was, it, they, it was the two together. It, there, there was a dose response to albumin only in the terlipressin group. Is that right, Sophie? That's what it looks like. Yeah. And yeah. it was pretty, it's pretty notable, actually. The numbers in the placebo group, it's 7.6%. 10.3% and then in 7.8, 5.7, So they really do stay pretty stable. But I feel like if we know this going into another trial of terlipressin, why are we still cranking the albumin as high as we are here? Like we know that the trial is trying to show a benefit for terlipressin. Why not give it the best chance that it has here? And the terlipressin group here did get less albumin, but it wasn't that much of a difference. So it does. Do we know how high their maps got? Did, did they report that? What was the elevation in MAP with the terlipressin group? If it did, it would be in the supplement. Yeah. I'm like looking through however many tables in the supplement. I don't Josh, see it in the you, supplement. I'm looking through it right now. One of the other issues is that in the, the other trial that was reported in the same issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, it was just a trial of albumin in hospitalized patients with, do I want to say they were hospitalized with this? No, they were just hospitalized with cirrhosis or hepatorenal physiology. Is that right, Elliot? Yeah, so they, they were also predominantly patients with alcohol-related cirrhosis, and they had low albumin levels, and they were basically there for an acute decompensation, mainly for something like ascites. They did not have hepatorenal syndrome. They did not have SBP, and that study was designed exclusively to look at what happens if we increase albumin. Is that magical? And it turns out that it did not reduce infections, even though that group had some really beautiful data suggesting that it could. It did not reduce renal injury even though they thought it could, but it did result in increased pulmonary edema. I, mean, I think the main issue here is that albumin has a known therapeutic window, but it really only shows up in large retrospective studies. And it is sad that it was part of a blind, it was part of the blind, it was a blind spot for the trial design. Yeah. I mean, what does everybody else do in practice? Like you give the three days of bolus and you do the volume challenge. And afterwards, do I really want to give them more if I don't see the benefit? Because otherwise I feel like albumin goes into the splanchnic void and it's not going to do anything. And it's probably going to make things worse. It's certainly going to make them more edematous and it's going to make their ascites worse. So it just seems strange that this is a part of the part of the trial. But that's a problem, right? Because People are basing their treatments off these trials, and if you're not giving albumin, you're not practicing evidence-based medicine right now, and so that's part of the problem. So interestingly, by the way, um, there was a question of what were the maps during follow-up, but it's figure S S9A in the supplement, and it's not different across placebo and terlipressin throughout follow-up. Like, it's very slightly higher, but it's not significantly different between the groups. They all sort of linger just under 80 over the first seven days. And I will tell you that I was, I had been, and I'm probably going to revisit my practice. I had been pretty aggressive with albumin in patients with what I would describe as a paterenal physiology, patients where I could clearly identify that this is what's going on, whether or not this is the cause of their AKI. I'm always, it's always a little questionable, but I, I have been very aggressive 
with giving them albumin, I think I'm going to be more cautious and a little bit more cognizant of the down, of the downsides there. So Joel, what you're saying is you like treating yourself. You know what? I, I responded pretty <laughs> well to that therapy in terms of my well-being. It's but I think it's, it's nice that we have randomized controlled data of does treating to a normal number of X lab value actually help patient outcomes, right? This is the whole like EPO to hemoglobin story again, like normalizing the number makes you feel better, but doesn't really help the patient. And that's helpful to know. But I, and I want to go back to, we were really, we really pounded the study when they created the study about the enrollment criteria. And we said, boy, there's really a sick population. They did this and they did that. But in the end, they hit their primary outcome with a pretty significant p-value. This drug really worked to reverse this cause of AKI. You can say what you want about their enrollment criteria. They they hit it. It makes the creatinine go down below 1.5, and it gives 10% more people respiratory failure. Like Those are two hard outcomes we can live by. And they don't get transplanted, and they, and they don't they live any longer. Yeah. Yeah, the living and the transplant. I just want it's it, this. This kind of reminds me of the talk about treating cast nephropathy and multiple myeloma, and using and these therapies that we that we're going to use phoresis or we're going to use a high cutoff dialyzer or however we're going to go about doing it. And then people say you didn't improve survival, and I was like, improving survival is going to depend on what type of chemotherapy they get and how effective your treatment for multiple myeloma is. It's going to have not very little to do with how you're going to re- be able to reverse their AKI. But reversing their AKI is going to be a benefit for these patients regardless. They're going to be able to get a wider range of chemotherapy. They're going to be happier because they're going to be off dialysis. There's going to be a lot of advantages, even though whether they live or die is not going to be dependent on whether you're able to reverse their AKI. Is that right? And so it always felt, like, yeah, I get that that's the, most, that's the most important hard outcome, but I'm not sure if this intervention ever has a chance of moving the needle there. But, whether but how do we... Are- how do I know that a 10% difference in last renal replacement therapy is significant, but a 6% increase in mortality is not, right? That's the part that I have a hard time reconciling. If you're going to say neither significant, then I'm fine saying maybe it's as good as placebo. But if you're saying it's better in this one respect, but not worse because it's a slightly smaller number, that's harder for me to buy. I think the questions really that I'd be interested in thinking deeply about is, does this get them out of the hospital for a few more days with their family or a little bit more quality of life for just some short period, knowing that they have an incredibly short life no matter what? And if it can do that, then knowing the risk that they're going to die anyway, but maybe they'll get a few more days that are good. I think that that comes down to the question that I would be most interested in this type of patient population, but doesn't seem to be the one that gets asked. Do, Do we have data on when they were discharged from the hospital? I just don't remember reading that. I don't remember reading that either. So do we think treating these patients with terlipressin actually lowered their where they stood on the transplant list and so they get discharged? They're not the ones being considered as much. And then that's that's the reason why they're not getting the transplants. But then perhaps in that time frame, they have complications and they're the ones that come in and die in the long term or short long term. That's So in the discussion, the authors presented both possibilities. They said it's possible that the worsening pulmonary status prevented these patients from getting transplanted, and it's possible that the improvement in their renal function improved their MELD scores and made them less transplant, more less likely to get a transplant. And it didn't, sounds like they didn't have the data to differentiate those two, which seems like an important question and something that... Yeah. Uh, yeah, in hindsight, all these things look important, right? When they planned the trial, they probably did not think all these things would be important. They were just looking at hey, we are going for HRS reversal and that will work and that'll be enough. And okay, let's look at liver transplant as a secondary outcome, right? 
it's uh, I can easily see something like this happening. In in hindsight, it's twenty twenty. And 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 the other thing, and and Jess, I appreciate your point, but we all <laughs> when we went over the methods, I was like, what do we think about this definition of a primary outcome? And everybody was like, yeah, it's a pretty good primary outcome. It seems like it's a pretty rigorous primary outcome. And now we're on the other side of it, and we're like, we're not so happy now because because of this, these adverse events that are no doubt uh, a total mortality Kaplan-Meier curve is hard to ignore. That one's a right. rough I one mean, to set. Exactly. The- the reason you run a clinical trial is for two points, right? One is to see, does the drug help people when you get the drug? And two, are there really bad side effects you couldn't have imagined by doing a trial on 10 people? And here you see maybe some benefit in the creatinine, and you see some worsening in the pulmonary and maybe the other secondary outcomes as well. But again, it's really clear, and to your point, that this was a primary efficacy endpoint study, but there were huge components of that trial design that I really think were clearly informed by the FDA that were intended to evaluate safety more rigorously than other ones had done. Yeah, and they get get tripped up by the safety. They really do. It just makes me wonder if norepi should be our first drug. Should I be reaching for that? sooner. And, I mean, t- uh, talk about a drug that's never shown a mortality benefit, right? Every damn drip that you use in the in the, in the the ICU has not gone through this kind of trial, and we use so, them all the time. So norepi actually has data over other pressors, right? When there are shortages of norepinephrine, rates of ICU death rise because people are reaching for epinephrine or other things. So that's the one that actually does not necessarily for HRS, but has data in septic shock. So that one I feel not so bad about. How does it I have do nothing the... else. It's as good as terlipressin with less side effects. So. Yeah, so how does it do with vasoconstriction? I'm not familiar with that literature. Does anyone know offhand? Do you see... Because from my experience, I, you see the ischemic toes and the ischemic fingers. You still see a lot of the other vasoconstrictive effects. I'm not aware of it being less uh, of an issue with... Uh... Right, and remember, I think because has... This would be vasopressor versus placebo. That's what we're looking yeah. at. And boy, I bet it's not as safe as it is. You think about it. When you were talking about vasopressor versus vasopressor, I'm, I'm fine with that. But here we're doing vasopressor versus placebo. And I think these types of adverse effects and these kind of, we may be seeing those types of problems. I, I don't know if there's randomized clinical trial data on this, but the idea of norepinephrine is right. It says both vasoconstrictive and ionotropic effects. It's just going to improve cardiac output, which will let you also pump that extra fluid through that pulmonary vasculature in a way that won't lead to pulmonary congestion the same way that a peripheral vasoconstrictor or terlipressin or imidogen would. And maybe it's an issue with the uh, bolus versus drip terlipressin. That's also a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Elliot, you said it was safer. And when they talked about safer, what kind of endpoints are they talking about? The, yeah, so the, it was the the pain and and the episodes of the, the treatment discontinuation due to things like digital ischemia, and so that that trial was in Europe. So this, yeah, everywhere that's that terlipressin is being used, it's being used as a continuous infusion for that reason. There is concern amongst the proponents of terlipressin that norepinephrine might somehow increase after load more. I'm not sure about the actual data for that, but I really do think that because it doesn't have a patent or a drug company behind it, really norepinephrine's use is dependent on advocates and enthusiasts. And like at Stanford, the the group who did that, it was years of them working out protocols, begging people to run it on the floor to enroll a couple of dozen people. And if it's not the passion of frontline clinicians driving it, it's just not going to happen. And then it would have to be done in every single hospital, every single committee, like patient safety committee would have to allow for floor pressers. And it's sad, but it would probably be worth it. 
I feel like at the end of the day, I'm not smart enough to figure out who's going to benefit from trilopressin and who's not. Like, this is a study that leaves me in a place where I know that I can make the creatinine a little better in maybe 15% of people, and I know 10% of people more will get respiratory failure. But as to who I should use this medicine in and who not, I feel like I don't, I'm not left in a good enough place, and I don't know how any clinician facing one single patient in front of them is going to make a really good informed choice here. But anyway, that's it's not going to be needed because FDA has not approved it from what I... But here's so the question. Going to get the but there's a lot of the part of the world that it is approved and they get to read the New England Journal of Medicine too. And what, right. so, what so, do they so do? Exactly. The Europeans, like I remember Tom Oates would always be smirking on Twitter saying, you North American guys Sneak. are backward. Yeah, yeah he would. Yeah. He like would. you guys are backward. You don't you use treat us like hillbillies. Yeah. Exactly. You use these backward placebo drugs and Turlipressin is magical. But even he agreed after the, during the chat. I was just scrolling through and he's like, hey, grudgingly, maybe we should relook at what our existing standard of care is. And I think that's going to happen. I think Turlipressin uses, they, they shot themselves in the foot. I think in Europe, it's going to drop. Elliot, did, uh, what about have, in the HRS community? What was the reaction to this article? Similar to what we're talking about? Or did they have, was there kind of a different take on it? I think it's it's quite similar to this. I think I think most people in hepatology would discount the lack of effect on mortality simply that it wasn't powered for that, and that there's competing risks here that are are too great to account for in this trial. Uh, it did meet its primary endpoint, and it was not something. It's hard to celebrate when there's all of those adverse events, but I think like the general reaction, the first thing people will say is, if in my hands, I would use this turlipressin at this creatinine. And in fact, if this got approved, I wouldn't be starting at a 3.5. I'd be starting at a 2.25, 1.5, and so forth. Like, why did everybody enter this trial so late? So you could start seeing earlier in the game. I think there's a lot more interest as well as trying to do, is trying to figure out who already has enough volume on board to avoid all this excessive, potentially toxic albumin and go straight to vasoconstrictors. And we don't get the the luxury of being able to experiment because we don't have the treatment available to us. And one of the things that, that we talk about with HRS is it's a functional disease. And I think that, that the, the kidney is histologically normal. And I think that made that biases us to think that the timing of intervention is not as important as it may be in like septic ATN, where you actually have uh, real histologic damage to the tubules. Since it's just a, it's just a, a functional disorder, we could probably come in at any point in the natural history and kind of rescue the kidney by if we improve perfusion. And maybe that's not as true as we'd like to think. Amen. Yeah. So if yeah, if, if you had to do a, a trial, it feels defeatist to say, "Hey, we give up and and we don't use terlipressin." It looks like there is something there. That subgroup in alcoholic hepatitis or SIRS or what have you. Obviously, I don't think malincrod is. I I don't know, but I, I'm not sure they're going to pursue this. But if you had money and and you had a trial, either norepinephrine or terlipressin, would you do a trial? Well, Maybe in the less sick people. And isn't Maybe that targeting and a map. isn't that the argument for approval? That if this drug gets approved, that we'll, we, we will be able to experiment further and figure out when it's optimal to try it. And if we don't approve it, we're just never going to know. That's what's going to happen is that there's going to be no there's going to be no more large trials on it. There's not going to be hobbyists tinkering with it on the floors trying to figure out how to optimize optimally use this. I mean, we'll keep doing that to some degree. I, okay, we will depend on Tom Oates. 
think, I think he personally should walk around and take notes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, that's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good point, Jordy. Is that this is approved in other places, and they they are probably going to be forced to re examine how they're using it. There's certainly the use of albumin is re- really needs to be reevaluated with these two trials, recognizing the, the toxicity there that uh, at least I didn't recognize. We forget that a lot of the countries that are using it are countries that have really fantastic nationwide electronic health records that are going to be able to capture these outcomes in more detail than we got in this trial, <laughs> like duration of hospitalization and things that might matter to us clinicians that they weren't thinking quite as much about when interrogating it for the safety and efficacy components that they were looking at. So I do think that this is a situation where where actually the observational evidence could be really fascinating in the future. Jordy, you look like you're just itching to get your hands on those data sets. One day, one day, (laughs) Swedish National Registry. (laughs) One of the things I wanted to ask Elliot about was about one in six patients had recurrence of uh, hepatorenal syndrome. It looked like it was about the same ratio regardless of whether they were recovered from terlipressin or just recovered because of the magic of albumin or what have you. Does that sound right? That sounded, I thought I was actually surprised that it was that low. I I expected a much higher rate of recurrence of HRS. Yeah, that rate sounds about, I would have Mm -hmm. quoted on rounds 20%. And yeah, it it feels so many times I take, when I see an HRS patient, we discharge them and the very next month, they're right back in, same kind of issue. And you're like, uh, rinse, wash, repeat. You want to hear something depressing? Yes, my favorite thing is something <laughs> depressing. Thinking forward to future clinical trials and thinking, okay, what else is coming down the pipeline? And I plugged in the term hepatorenal into NIH Reporter to see who's studying it, like what's being funded, and it returned 10 projects. And the term hepatorenal was sometimes actually used in PKD projects, so it's not actually related to hepato- hepatorenal syndrome. And there's uh, one lab um, at the NIH that's being funded to look at cannabinoid receptors as a target. And that's the only mechanistic project that is being funded. I have lots of patients that are activating their (laughs) cannabinoid receptors on a daily basis. I will refer them to that lab. For for comparison, did you look at cardiovenal just to see what that number looks like? Because I imagine it's slightly more. Yeah, let me do that. Perhaps it's a good... Uh, palliative agents. Well, 28. <laughs> I guess that the other question I have here is related to the palliative question. I feel like when a drug is approved, and particularly like a new drug is given to a patient, it comes with a measure of hope. Like you're giving me a thing because you think it will make me get better and live longer and feel better. And I worry about giving a medicine like this, or if it were to be approved, which it sounds like it probably won't. Uh, but if it were to be approved, giving that medicine to a patient, giving them maybe like a false kind of hope, in this sense. And I, I don't know if folks have like special counseling they feel like they would give to a patient in this setting or, or how they would approach that. If it's not showing a mortality benefit, showing an improvement in creatinine, maybe not showing an improvement in progression to transplant or, or living longer. Josh, are you implying that oncologists imply false hope when they give patients palliative chemo? Did I say the C word? I don't think that came out of my mouth. But I... I... I welcome others' thoughts on it. I I think that obviously it's all about who's delivering it and that you're doing it in the context of conservative care, but you can't guarantee everybody will do that. And I think you're planning on giving this medicine based on the data that we have, and we feel like some of this data is based on a design that could have been 
better designed. So had we not had all of this respiratory failure, actually these patients would have been doing quite a bit better and maybe had better mortality outcomes. So we're taking it all and we're applying all of that information to mortality, but really I think the, the picture is still so incomplete. That being said, these patients, their mortality risk is regardless awful. And when I see them, I feel like I look at them and unfortunately I think bad. I, it's my stomach drops. I It's my least favorite diagnosis. It's my least favorite consult for this reason. And so I, I'm not going to give anybody false hope, no matter what, even if I have a drug that might help a little bit, because that's still what I think this is. It's going to help a little bit for a small population. But in the grand scheme of things, it's still not what we need for it. It had double the response rate of placebo. Uh, it's pretty, that's, that's not nothing. And these were the sickest population. They, they selected a very sick population. In, in the end, I, two, two big thoughts. One, I'm going to miss the fact that we're not going to have outrage over how much it was going to cost. That was going to be so much fun to get upset about how expensive this drug yeah, was going to be. Life. Yeah, Malincrat was not going to be, they were not going to be bashful with their, with their price. And I, and honestly, I think that in, in, Outside of this study, right? Because this is we, we've established that this is in many ways the sickest of the sick. I think we would have learned from the study. We would have turned down our use of albumin quite a bit. We would have been using point of care ultrasound to monitor how much volume we were giving. There may be more invasive monitoring, looking much more aggressive or awareness of problems with pulmonary edema after this study. I, I think it would have. I think it would have been a net benefit for patients, or at least worth exploring further. And I'm just, I'm a little disappointed that we're never going to get that opportunity because this looks like a drug that has activity and really for a disease that's largely hopeless. Yeah. So th this trial was a letdown for me. I'll admit I have huge European envy with their castles and universal healthcare and terlopressin. I always felt like we were at the kids table playing around with octreotide at Thanksgiving. And I, I get the study drops. I feel like a kid and Christmas and I open my present and I get a crappy sweater. It was like a huge bummer. And so I'm not happy with, with how this went. Yeah, I think no, one, no one's delighted with how this went. Let's wrap this up. Does anybody have any final thoughts here that they want to share? Or can we just move on to, what do we call them? Tubular secretion. There's a nice quote in the European chat by Charlie Thompson. He's this retired nephrologist who's like a wise old man who has this wonderful tidbits. He put a quote uh, during the chat on uh, from a journal which is so old that it wasn't in PubMed, 1945. Anyway, it's from a surgeon and he's talking about kidney failure and he says the body is not analogous to a tank into which water can be forced until it bursts through the kidneys. Instead, the damaged kidney cannot be forced. The fluid accumulates in the circulatory system and the heart fails general cerebral and renal edema occur and further complicate the picture. And that's what, what we see. We just forced so much albumin and then gave the terlipressin. And this is from 1945. So sometimes some lessons we never learn. Right, the truth. Now you got any tubular secretion? I guess I'll put one more plug in for Let's Lime. So we just did our second episode. We recorded it. I listened to it today. It's fantastic. We had Shreya Trevetti and Adam Rodman. I think by the time this podcast drops, there'll be the second episode will be out, both webcasts on YouTube and podcasts. So Let's Lime, please go uh, check it out. It's worth it. And we just booked our third guest and it is a big one. It's going to be a good guest. It's going to be really good. Jenny, you got something? I do. And it's inspired by our discussion tonight and thinking about all of us are you know, nephrologists and we see Elliot, a physician, a hepatologist, but we all see hepatorenal patients. 
we on our consult list, they constitute a big number of consults that we get. Yet, as I mentioned before, we're not having novel therapeutics. There's not enough work being done to figure out like how can we do better for an important issue, an important problem. And earlier this month, there was the national, the annual national meeting of. Uh, the American Society of Clinical Investigation is a big physician scientist meeting where people were talking about how there's this leaky pipeline and there are not enough physician scientists. And I think this issue is a testament to that, right? Because if there were more people who were able to feel inspired by what they see on the wards, but had the opportunity to be like, hey, I really want to give research a shot and see like how I can actually make a difference. I think there should be more pathways for that to happen. And in some ways that could actually inspire more creativity and maybe more solutions to this problem. So not a specific event or anything that I'm necessarily promoting or trying to bring awareness to, but just putting it out there that this is still a problem and something that uh, we as a community, both on the nephrology side, but also the scientific community should think about moving forward and coming up with a better solution for this problem. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to secrete onto Jenny's secretion here, but I want to <laughs> echo the like the power of physician scientists and helping to advance the field that we work in. Particularly in nephrology, I think we're in a place that we don't have enough folks who are seeing patients and answering basic questions in the lab. Some of that is driven by interest in the specialty, but some of that is just driven by incentives in the pipe, the really shooting water out of a cannon and hoping it lands on the other side of a pipeline. And I would love to see more institutional fixes there as well. Can I secrete on that? I, I, I wanted to use this opportunity to give a shout out. I have six amazing female mentees, all of whom are planning to pursue careers in as physician scientists. So I just want to shout out one of them, Leah Rethi. She tweets at Leah Rethi, and she just published an amazing first author publication that she designed and led from the ground up. She's a medicine intern. She took a year off in her medical school to do extra research and to learn how to do crazy, hard analytic methods. And I think she's going to be a rock star physician scientist. And I, I have hope that there are a few coming too through the pipeline. Uh, excellent. Uh, so you got something? I did want to put a plug in since Nayan did one for his Lyme for, I do a, a podcast with two colleagues of mine at the University of Colorado. And this is like underneath what all of us do, but this is targeting medical students. It's targeting residents. It's targeting anybody that's interested or has some curiosity about nephrology. And we're just trying to talk about some of the basics and try and really break it down and simplify it for them. It's called Kidney Essentials, and it's at kidneyessentialspodcast.com. And then the people that I do it with is at Kidney Critic and at Judy Blaine 2. And they are some fantastic physicians, one of which is a physician scientist, and she works on podocytes. And then the other one is a clinician educator like myself. And we all need to work together to try and educate those who are interested or try and capture those who we think might be interested in nephrology and make kidneys cool again. Elliot, you got something for us? I'll just say that in hepatology, we have to hold these two seemingly contradictory thoughts at the same time about preparing for death and preparing for life. So my shout out here is for Dr. Neka Uferi, who came to give grand rounds for us. Uh, a couple of days ago, and her sort of life's work is to encourage patients and providers to begin early goals of care uh, planning, and that palliative care should be really part of the package with the albumin, the midodrine, 
in the Artria type. Excellent. Yeah, I just want to say this is a lot of fun. We got a, we got a lot of new faces on here. That was a lot, it was a great uh, discussion. Real excited for the future of Freely Filtered. And if you're listening to this, this is the first episode of Freely Filtered that was not edited by myself. Nyan Aurora stepped up to do this, and this is a brave new world, and we're real excited for that. So uh, if this one sucks, you know who to talk. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot. This has been great, guys. Everybody, say goodbye now. Bye. 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 Say it out loud, Jordy. You can't just wave. It's a podcast, okay? Ah. Oh gosh.